welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, we feature Dr. Howard G. Hendricks. In a tribute to Dr. Hendricks, Chuck Swindoll writes, No man has meant more to me in my adult life than Dr. Howard G. Hendricks, whom all of us know simply as Prof. Today, Howard Hendricks presents a sermon on the study of the mind. The following material is copywritten by and provided courtesy of the Moody Bible Institute. Elijah was residing at Dothan. The servant awakened early one morning, went out to pick up the Dothan daily, and saw what to him was a horrible sight. The surrounding countryside was infested with the invading Syrian army. He rushed back into the presence of his master and in panic said, What shall I do? And Elisha said, the first thing you need to do is to stop worrying. And I can almost hear it. Wait till you go outside. Have I got a surprise for you? And Elisha steps outside, takes one look, and then prays, Lord, open his eyes that he might see. What was the problem of the servant? Was that he saw too much? No, he saw too little. He failed to see the host of God in camp between him and his master and the opposing enemy. And ladies and gentlemen, that's your problem. That's my problem this morning. We cannot solve our problems because we cannot see them. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 52, there is an incredible insight to the life of Jesus Christ. The text says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You see, Jesus Christ developed as a total person. He developed physically, he developed socially, he developed spiritually, and he developed intellectually. And that's my concern this morning. And Bob Smith set me up for it when he said, we've lost our mind. You see, Christianity often receives a bad rap. To many individuals, Christianity is the non-thinking man's filter. He has the stereotype that when you become a Christian, you put your head in a bucket and you fire a 45 in it. You commit intellectual suicide. My friends, nothing could be further from the biblical truth. Jesus said, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And for a few moments this morning, I'd like to share with you a few principles 
I hope you have a piece of paper, because I would like to encourage a study for you. I'm going to give you a few principles and then a few verses of Scripture to provoke your biblical thinking. I assure you, I could give you dozens of verses for each of the principles, but that would spoil the fun. You see, I'm an educator, and I believe that often the process is more important than the product. And I would love to see you become deeply involved in a study particularly of the New Testament, of the mind. You will discover invariably it is related either to God or to Satan. Because your mind is that which when controlled, controls every aspect of your life. The first principle I want to underscore in your thinking is that you cultivate the art of thinking. It is conservatively estimated that 75% of Americans never think. 15% think they think, but merely rearrange their prejudices which leaves only 10% of individuals who think. And my friends, they are always the significant people in any generation, and particularly in our confusing age. Oh, I think there's somebody out there saying, look, Hendricks, you know, I'm, I'm a college graduate. You know, I, I went to university. Yeah, I know. That's why I put this in. <laughs> See, for 45 years, I have been teaching college and university graduates, and I've discovered the average one cannot write, cannot read, cannot think. In fact, I said that one day to a class. If you can't read, write, or think, what can you do? One wag hollered out, watch television. my judgment, you will never become a significant, impacting Christian until you learn to think. Nothing as easy as thinking. Nothing as difficult as thinking well. Thinking under the light of the truth which God has revealed. If you have a Bible or a New Testament, will you turn to two verses very familiar to you? I suspect many of you have memorized them, but I want you to see them from a new perspective. I'm talking about Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, please note, in view of what God has detailed for you in the first 11 chapters, Men and women, God never asks you to do anything for Him until He has fully informed you of what He has done for you. And on the basis of what He has done, He appeals to you to offer your back bodies as living sacrifices, holy, pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now look at verse 2. 
Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. I love Philip's paraphrase. Don't allow the world to squeeze you into its mold. But, what's the option? Be transformed. It's the word for metamorphosis. The worm, the caterpillar that becomes a butterfly. But there's an important insight in the Greek text. This is a passive imperative. And if you will dust off your high school English, you will remember that whenever you have a passive, something is being done to the subject. You do not transform yourself. You do not have the capability. This is something that God alone can do in your life. Then what do you do? Answer, be transformed how? By the renewing of your mind. Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse was one of my mentors. I remember as a young man asking him, Dr. B, how do you find the will of God? In his typical brusque manner, he said, Hendricks, 90% of the will of God will be found from your neck up and took off. You know, it looked, took me a long time to process that until I finally came to understand why he spent so much of his time brainwashing my mind with the Word of God. You interested in transformation? You're inter are you interested in supernatural change? That's God's specialty. And he does it by the renewing of your mind as you bathe your mind in the insights of his revelation. Scripture is always a return to reality, requiring a radically new way of interpreting and responding to reality. And if you are going to understand your time as those men of Issachar and know what you ought to do, you are going to have to bathe it in the truth that God has revealed. There's another passage I want you to jot down and think about. It's found in the book of Philippians, chapter 4 and verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You see, he's informing you that not all truth is in the Scripture, but all truth must be related to the Scripture and must be interpreted in light of the Scripture. Julian the Apostate, in the third century was determined to blot out Christianity and to his disgust he discovered the law of spiritual thermodynamics namely the greater the heat the greater the expansion the more he persecuted the church the more it flourished finally got his little straggling band of men in an upper room and he shouted to them bah Christianity provokes too much thinking why even the slaves are thinking. 
which to a Roman mind was incredible. The Romans taught slaves do not think. Slaves cannot think. But men and women, slaves do think under the impact of the Word of God. Do you? It disturbs me no end. How many Christians I'm finding in this generation who very obviously have spent little or no time at all thinking about the truth of the Word. Now, we've got a lot of students here from the Moody Bible Institute, and some of you are saying, I can't think. I'll wear my brain out. Well, you need to know that another of my hobbies is watching surgery. And whenever I get an opportunity, I'm in an operating room. And I have a friend in Philadelphia who is a pathologist, and whenever I show up in town, he will call me up and say, Hey, Howie, come on over. i got a pod. Let's take it apart. <laughs> so most of the time, I'm just about falling in the body, absolutely fascinated by God's creation. And we went into the doctor's room. We were washing up, and I said to him, Hey, man, you've seen a lot of brains in your life. Oh, he said, thousands of them. I said, you ever see one worn out? He said, Hendricks, I haven't even seen one slightly used. <laughs> so run the risk! That's why I've spent all of these years teaching in a seminary. Can you think of anything more challenging, more fulfilling than molding plastic minds? to conform them to the image of Christ and then see those students pick up the habits for themselves. For your mind is like a muscle. And the more you use it, the more capable it becomes. And the less you use it, the faster you atrophy it. I spend a lot of time, for obvious reasons, around older people. It's kind of depressing at times. <laughs> but I, I'm running into some very encouraging people. But you know, so many people say, well, you know, Brother Hendricks, I, I guess I ought to think, but... <laughs> <laughs> and I say, my friend, you need to remember as a fisherman that a fish decays from the head first. You'll have to think that went through for a while. <laughs> there is a second principle I want to share with you that involves your use of your mind from a biblical perspective. And that is that you learn to manage your time. The older I become in the faith, the more impressed I am with the importance of managing one's time. I believe it separates the men from the boys and the women from the girls. You see, the one thing that every man and woman in this auditorium, everyone listening to my voice, has in common is 24 hours a day. 
We don't have the same IQ. We don't have the same personality. We don't have the same educational background. All kinds of things we do not have alike. But you have just as much time as Jesus Christ had on earth in any 24-hour day. And doesn't it fascinate you that he was never in a hurry, but he always had time to do the Father's will? Back to your New Testament. Will you turn over to the book of Ephesians again? Two verses you probably know very well. I want you to see them again from a slightly different perspective. Ephesians 2, verses 8, 9, 10. For it, has been by gr it, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, that is the whole by grace through faith process. Not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Salvation is not a work of man for God, it's a work of God for man. Not of works, so that no one can boast. Most of us understand that. But look at verse 10. Paul says, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. What kind of works? Works which God prepared in advance for us to do. You want a mind-blowing thought? Are you doing what God created you to do? A lot of people in ministry are not. A lot of laymen are not. Because they've never taken the time to examine the giftedness that God sovereignly gave to them. They spend all of their time comparing themselves with someone else. By the way, that's carnality. God created you absolutely unique. There's nobody on a planet like you. Say amen. amen. Everybody else is saying that. To find a man or a woman, particularly a young person, who discovers his giftedness, her unique abilities, and then spends all of their life pouring themselves into the fulfillment of that purpose. Turn over to chapter 5, same epistle. Ephesians 5. Verse 15, be very careful then how you live, not as morons. <laughs> That's what he said, don't blame me. But as wise, what is wise? Answer, making the most of every opportunity. Look at the different translations. In every case, you got a time component, buying up the minutes. Why? Because the days are evil. Men and women, the more evil your times become, the more essential it is that you buy up the opportunities doing that which God created you to do. 
Psalm 90 is one of my favorites. I'm sure many of you share it. It's the oldest psalm in the Psalter. It was written by Moses at the end of his life. And you are compelled to ask, how did he spend the bulk of his life? Well, Moses spent the bulk of his life conducting funerals. A whole generation perished in the wilderness. Somebody had to bury him. And you know, when you conduct funerals, as I have done through my life, it has a way of compelling you to think. And so Moses says in verse 9, All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years, or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. In other words, Moses is saying, God gives to every man, to every woman, a little slice of life. And that life evaporates just like the morning dew. And because that is true, therefore, verse 12, he prays, teach us to number our days aright that we may get us a heart of wisdom. You see, my friends, you don't have eternity in which to make your impact for Jesus Christ. And I am so encouraged by finding an increasing number of older people who are finally getting the message. Man in my church, I tried to disciple that guy. When I was a student in seminary, he resisted every move. He's now 76 years of age, and just two, three years ago, he finally got the picture. And he said to me the other day, coming out of the worship service, with my wife and I, he said, Howie, I'm so sorry it took me so long. But you need to know my last three years have been more fulfilling than my life put together. That's why the Christian doesn't talk about retirement. Do you? Everywhere I go, oh, Bobby Hendricks, I just got a couple more months before retirement. I said, where are you going in? I'm going to Sarasota, Florida. <laughs> you ever discover how many people blow out their aorta on the way to Sarasota? <laughs> hey, friend, you may retire from a company. It may not be an option. But you never retire from the Christian life. You never retire from your ministry. And at the very time when some of these people ought to be tearing the place apart for Jesus Christ, they're sliding for home. They're reaching for the bench. And Moses is saying, let me tell you what I learned. I went to school in the desert by the side of perhaps a million and a half graves. You need to pray, Lord... Teach us, give us a heart of wisdom that we may know how to invest our time. There is a third principle I'd like you to think about. And that is, you need to evaluate your life in ministry. You know why this fascinates me? 
I've been in the ministry approximately 55 years. I've never had a person sit me down and say, Hendricks, you've been in this Christian life a long time. Tell me how to mess mine up, will you? I've never had anybody ask me for any input as to how to ruin their Christian life. Just keep going the way you're going. You may land there. And if you do, you can be certain of one thing. It's because you never sat down to do some evaluation. You never stopped to think, what are my objectives? What do I want? Not now, but at the end of life. So I work with professional athletes. And in football, you understand the number one goal is to get the Super Bowl ring. But I've worked with people who have three of them and who are still asking Peggy Lee's question, is that all there is? There's got to be more to life than football or making widgets or whatever else you spend the bulk of your life doing. But if you don't have clear-cut objectives, that's where you will end. But you not only need objectives, you need priorities. You see, in objectives, I ask the question, what do I want? In priorities, I ask the question, how badly do I want it? So I have people all the time who say, Hendricks, I'd give my right arm if I had your marriage. To which I say, that's what it may cost you. <laughs> so you don't get a good marriage on the backstroke. You don't get a good marriage by pouring all of your life into other objectives when marriage becomes number 27 on a list of 20. You only get a good marriage, like anything else worthwhile in life, if that's a high priority. You need to know I'm into symphonic music. And I love to hear Van Cliburn play. We have a woman in our church who's a part of the Dallas Symphony Orchestra. She said to me one day, how are you going to the Van Cliburn concert? I said, I wouldn't miss it. She said, how would you like to meet him? I mean, how ridiculous a question. <laughs> oh, I said, I'd love to meet him. She said, you meet me behind the stage after the concert, and I'll introduce you to him, so you can be sure I was there. And I asked him the one question I wanted to ask him. I said, Mr. Van Cliburn, how many hours a day do you practice? Very casually, almost in an offhand manner, he said, Oh, eight or nine, two of them doing nothing but finger exercises. And to think, my mother wanted me to play the piano. <laughs> Would I like to play the piano like Van Cliver? You better believe it, but not that badly. When you stop to evaluate your life, if you keep doing what you are doing, you're going to keep getting 
what you're getting. And if you don't like what you are getting, you're going to have to make some significant change. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. Do your best, Paul says, to be approved of God. You ever contemplated the thought that you can be eminently successful with men and a total failure with God? Approved of God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Handling with skillfulness the word of truth. Let me give you one other passage that you can study on your own. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 10 and following. You remember Paul talks about the foundation and says very clearly, don't tamper with the foundation. The foundation has already been laid. It's Jesus Christ. Your responsibility is how you build on that foundation. And you can build with two kinds of materials. You can build with gold, silver, precious stones, that which is permanent. Or you can build with wood, hay, and stubble, that which is perishable. And there will be a fire test to reveal what kind of work. Please note, not how much, but what kind. And sometimes, he says, there will be people who will be saved just by fire. No fire, but no favor. Can I give you three questions to write down which I found very helpful in the process of discipleship? Every day you ought to spend some time asking, number one, what are my strengths? Now you got to watch this. Because we have a sloppy view of pride. You see, over the years I've interviewed a number of prospective missionaries for missionary organizations. And one of my favorite questions is, Hey man, you want to go to Boga Boga Land? Yeah, that's right, Dr. Hennings. That's it. I said, great. Well, what are your assets? My wife. What are your strengths? What do you got going? Why should this outfit send you there? <laughs> oh, well, Dr. Hendricks, I'm, <laughs> I'm a humble person. So, okay, let's write that down. Humility. What else you got? <laughs> you know how I know this? I've spent all of my life with students with business and professional people and I give them a little three by five card and I say look I want you to write down on that card what God has given you what are your assets do you have any idea how long it takes some people to write one thing down I've seen a person literally in an hour hold up a blank three by five card because, you see, we've got the sloppy, spongy view of pride. I had a pastor sometime at a pastor's conference say to me, Brother Hendricks, pray that I might be nothing. 
I said, no, I'm not going to take that. I'm not going to pray that. Take that by faith. <laughs> See, if I came down right next to you in that chair and said, what do you got going for you? See, some of you young people are the most gracious individuals I ever meet. You got a passion for hurting people. My friend, where did you get that? So you got that from God. And you better thank Him every day that He gave it to you. Because I spent all of my life trying to develop people to even, you know, move when a person comes near. Wow, that's too convicted. Number two, you need to write down your weaknesses. Oh, he said, Dr. Hendricks, that's, that's no problem. You fill an eight and a half by eleven, turn it over, fill up another one, you got some more? I've had people ask me for a packet of three by fives. <laughs> you know why that is? Do you know why it's easier for you to come up with your weaknesses and your strengths? I'll tell you. It's because you've been doing the devil's work. See, the devil is the accuser of the brethren. And by the way, he doesn't need your help. And here you are, Moody, and God is calling you to do this. And Satan is saying, you got to be kidding. You don't think you're going to pull that off, do you? So, well, I, I, I thought it was, devil. <laughs> but the more you talk, the more I'm not sure. <laughs> And what you end up is spending more of your time believing the devil than believing God. And I believe many a person in ministry is absolutely paralyzed. I can show you laymen who have the most significant contributions to make to the body of Christ and their confidence level is zero. You see, it is your strengths that develop your confidence. It's your weaknesses that develop your faith. Those are the areas in which God has to go to work in my life and perform His miraculous, supernatural, transforming work. But the third question you want to ask is, what do I need to change? Because change is the name of the game. Paul says in Romans 8, you're predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. If that's true, how much change do you think you can expect? And it's change that develops your growth. And to me, the most exciting thing in all of the world is to see people who understand what God has given me. What are the areas in which he needs to continue his gracious work to make me like Jesus Christ? And what specific areas am I trusting him to change me? Am I praying about? Am I seeking some counsel from older, more effective Christians who are a little further down the road? and can share their wisdom with me. 
A number of years ago, I was the finest candidate for somebody's psychopathic ward that you have ever seen. Uh, the boys in the white coats and the wagon were about to back it up to the seminary and take me away. And a very, very close friend here in the Chicago area, an executive of a large corporation, heard about my plight. He flew to Dallas at his own expense. He spent three days with me and shadowed my life. Everything I did, he did. He went to every classroom, sat in on every interview, followed me to my home. And at the end of three days, he said, Howie, I think I have the answer to your problem. You are behind in your think time. Men and women, if I had paid that man $50,000, I wouldn't have paid him what that spiritual counsel was worth. And you know what I'm finding? Check it out in your own experience. How much time do you spend thinking? See, it's a rat race society. It's the laser lane. Go, man! And many of us need to go away. We need to get to a quiet place. Take out a piece of paper and begin to enumerate what are the strengths that God, by His grace, has given to me? What are the weaknesses that I desperately need to develop so that they do not become serious handicaps to the future of my Christian life? And what am I trusting God to change in the next month, the next six months for students, next year, next semester, before graduation, when you are going to be launched into a real world. And you will thank God for every single minute that you spent alone with the Lord and His Word. Making those mid-course corrections that enable our Lord to conform you to His image. Thank you, dear Father. Your Word does not merely speak to theory, but to the reality of life. And I pray that you will not only give us a greater hunger and thirst to know the Word, but also to be transformed by it. We're living in days in which many men and women are broken at the wheel, desperately seeking purpose and meaning and fulfillment in life. And we pray that you will make us good advertisements for the Savior and for the power of the Word of God. And we want to thank you in advance for what you are going to do because we come with great expectation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 
You've been listening to Howard Hendricks. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.